calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the final installment of my Bad Girls series. I really hope that you all enjoyed this as much as I enjoyed doing it. Uh, It was definitely a lot more work doing an entire episode by myself and doing two episodes by myself, but I gotta say... I really enjoyed it. I really loved it. This was really fun for me. And uh, I've gotten a lot of really wonderful responses from you all. And that's where I wanted to start the episode today. I had mentioned that I had had a bad week on the mini episode on Friday. And not even two hours after I posted the episode, I got a a message from a listener uh, reaching out to me, letting me know that, you know, everything was going to be okay and that she was sorry that I had a bad week and gave such wonderful compliments to me about how I've been doing. So I wanted to say thank you to Harsha, Anna, and Bernadette in particular, who reached out to me. Uh, they were so, so sweet and gave such great advice and seemed to understand me. It was also kind of silly to me because I'm like, oh my God, I didn't I didn't expect or want people to be like giving me sympathy and all that kind of stuff, but it was an unexpected surprise and it really made my weekend. It just made everything feel so much better. So I really thank all of you so much. I don't know what I did to deserve you all, really. You're so wonderful. One more thing before we get started, I want to remind everybody that the best way they can help the show is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It means so much to us. Another place you can leave a review is on our Facebook business page. All right, so today I am going to be telling the story of Bonnie Parker. Bonnie Parker is part of the infamous crime duo, Bonnie and Clyde. So the first thing I noticed when I Googled Bonnie Parker was that most of the entries on the first page of Google were titled Bonnie and Clyde. But while together they were a gruesome duo, I wanted to know the woman that Bonnie Parker was without Clyde. The first article that I found solely dedicated to Bonnie was from FamousTexans.com. History.com also has an article entitled 10 Things You May Not Know About Bonnie Parker. I wanted to know more about the woman behind the crimes and the violent death, and I never really took the time to learn this story very well in the first place, so I learned a lot this week. Bonnie Elizabeth Parker was born October 1st, 1910, in Rowena, Texas. Rowena was a very small farming town. She was the middle child, and she had a brother, Buster, and a sister, Billie Jean. Her father, Charlie, worked as a bricklayer, and her mother, Emma, cared for the family. They were extremely poor. Bonnie never got any taller than 4 foot 11 inches, had blue eyes, and strawberry blonde hair. She was gorgeous. Bonnie was always one to stand out in the crowd. When she was only three years old, she was invited to sing a hymn at church. But instead of singing the song she had prepared, He's a Devil in His Own Hometown by Billy Murray came out of her mouth. Her mother wasn't embarrassed by the behavior, though. She was proud of Bonnie. 
Bonnie learned young that she wouldn't receive consequences for her actions. Bonnie's mother also raised her children to believe that they were better than the farmers that surrounded them and wanted her family to feel like they were somebody. Bonnie's dad unexpectedly died when she was only four years old. Emma couldn't afford to keep her children in Rowena, so she took her kids to her parents' home in Cement City, which is part of West Dallas, apparently. Max had never even heard of it. Emma did not like living in Cement City, but she was able to get a job as a seamstress. As Bonnie grew up in Cement City, she acted out quite a bit. Between the ages of four and six, she would light small fires and steal her grandfather's wine, and even fight in school with the girls and the boys. Consequences for these actions didn't seem to matter to her. She got attention. When she started school at age six, she focused on singing and her studies. She liked to play sports and do acrobatics, and was in all of the school plays. She also once won the school spelling bee. She wanted to be a writer or a poet or an actress for Broadway, but mostly she wanted to be a movie star. She even paid to have her own glamour shot taken at the age of 15 and dreamt of becoming famous, but she knew she could never be an actress like Greta Garbo because of her family's lack of status and money. Bonnie wasn't all fight. Apparently, she was very compassionate and helpful to her classmates in school. There was one student in her elementary school who was paralyzed, and she would help the student up the stairs every day. She was very close to her mother and siblings, and they knew her as a hopeless romantic. Bonnie's cousin once said, When Bonnie loved, she loved with all her heart. When she was 15, she met classmate Roy Thornton. They fell madly in love. Bonnie even got each of their names tattooed on her inner thigh, inside two hearts connected by an arrow. Bonnie and I are similar in the fact that we're impulsive. I always say, I don't half-ass anything, I whole-ass everything, but I don't quite think I would have jumped on the couple's tattoo train quite as quickly, though I do have a couple's tattoo. Shut up. Most people who had had tattoos at the time were in the circus, but this was just one more thing to make Bonnie stand out. Bonnie and Roy decided to drop out of school and asked their parents if they could get married. Her mom did not approve of Bonnie getting married so young. The median age at the time was 21 for women and 24 for men to get married. But she wore her mom down, and she gave her consent. Weeks into the marriage, Bonnie was really homesick and missed her mom. They ended up moving back in with her mother, and she was much happier. Bonnie began to notice that Roy got his money in mysterious ways. In 1927, about a year into the marriage, he disappeared for 10 days at a time. And when he got back, he started drinking heavily and beating Bonnie. Because of his actions, Bonnie thought that Roy must be cheating on her, which is so sad to me. If your husband or significant other is beating you and abandoning you without an honest answer, it's not your fault. She must have thought that if she was a better wife to Roy that maybe he wouldn't mistreat her and cheat on her. Bonnie started waitressing to pay the bills. Since Bonnie's need for attention couldn't be filled by Roy, and when he was home, he hit her, she still missed him when he was away. But as for abused women, we yearn for the good times, even if they were few and far between, so we're willing to put up with the abuse. It was later discovered that Roy had been going on many crime sprees while he was away from Bonnie. He eventually went to jail, but Bonnie decided not to divorce him. She continued working at the Hargraves Cafe in East Dallas. She met men from all walks of life and began going out with some of them. Some say she turned to sex work during this time to get extra money, but that's just hearsay. Roy and Bonnie never saw each other again, but Bonnie wore Roy's wedding ring until her dying day. I don't know if it's because she truly loved him or if she loved the sparkly diamond on her finger. When Bonnie was killed, Roy was in prison. When interviewed about it, he said, I'm glad they went out like they did. It's much better than being caught. He had been in jail for five years at that point and had made many escape attempts. On one such attempt on October 3, 1937, he was shot and killed. After Roy's arrest, Bonnie started working at another restaurant called Marco's in downtown Dallas. She was still only 18 years old. She was nearly fired several times at Marco for giving free food to the poor people that came into the restaurant. She was helplessly bored and growing more and more tired of living in Cement City all the time. A diary entry written at the time reads, Blue as usual. Not a thing to do. Why don't something happen? Things were pretty boring at the time. At the end of the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties were kind of over. At the beginning of the 1920s, consumerism was at an all-time high, wealth in the States nearly doubled, and people were buying stocks, and everyone seemed to be filthy rich. But now, all of those riches were dwindling, and the Great Depression arrived. This was around the time that Bonnie met Clyde. 
Most historians agree that Bonnie met Clyde on January 5th, 1930. Bonnie was age 19 and Clyde was 20. Bonnie was staying at a friend's house and Clyde had dropped by to see the friend. The house was at 105 Herbert Street in West Dallas. And I looked it up on Google Maps. It appears to just be a lot of grass now. Clyde had a new fancy car and he was smooth and handsome. It was love at first sight. Bonnie's brother Buster said in the documentary American Experience, Bonnie and Clyde, that you could see sparks fly when they looked at each other. Here's some background on Clyde. Clyde was born in 1909 to a poor family in Ellis County, Texas, which is southeast of Dallas. He was the second to the last of seven children. The family eventually settled in an urban slum of West Dallas in the early 1920s during the migration pattern of rural families moving into the city. Unfortunately, the Barrows spent the first months in West Dallas living under a wagon until they got enough money to buy a tent. Clyde was first arrested when he was 17 after running when police caught him when he never returned a rental car. He and his brother Buck got arrested together for the possession of stolen turkeys that year as well. Through 1927 to 1929, Clyde cracked safes, robbed stores, and stole cars. Both Bonnie and Clyde dreamt of being rich and famous. Apparently, Clyde once had a dream of being a famous musician, and Bonnie really connected with that. But why would Bonnie choose to be with another criminal, especially when the marriage with her criminal husband wasn't a happy one? Some psychologists and historians believe that the reason for this is something called hyperstophilia, or, funnily enough, Bonnie and Clyde syndrome. Bonnie and Clyde syndrome is defined as sexual arousal being contingent upon being with a partner known to have committed an outrage. This is known as Bonnie and Clyde syndrome by pop culture, but the term was created long after Bonnie's death. Another popular example of hyperstophilia is the aftermath of Ted Bundy's arrest. During his trial, young women with brown hair parted down the middle, which was Bundy's type, would crowd the courthouses and write letters to him. They couldn't believe that he could possibly have done those things, and some girls interviewed at the time even admitted to being scared, but they didn't care. Bundy even married one of his fangirls, Carol Ann Boone, who he proposed to in the middle of his proceedings. Also, isn't it just the cliche that women love a bad boy? Isn't that just the assumption? We think we can change him, or maybe it's just exciting to be with someone who appears to be powerful because of their violent or criminal behavior. I know when I was in my abusive relationship, at the time, the fact that he was ex-military and had seen lots of violence both terrified me, but also made me feel safe and protected. It's funny how your mind can make you believe things because you so desperately want someone's love. Now, when the two started their crimes... Bonnie started off as being pretty passive. While not partaking in the mischief at this time, Bonnie was no stranger to trouble. Remember, her parents even encouraged Bonnie's troublemaking behavior when she was a kid, and she never really feared the consequences. I wonder if Bonnie felt that she had more control going into her relationship with Clyde than she did with Roy. Already knowing his reputation, and was more willing to join along. Maybe Clyde brought out that dangerous spirit in her even more. Emma, Bonnie's mom liked Clyde at first, and thought he was very handsome. He would stay at the house with Bonnie and her family. But after a few months of bliss, the cops showed up at Emma's house in the middle of the night to arrest Clyde. This made Emma very concerned. She didn't like that her daughter had fallen in love with another criminal. But Bonnie assured her and made clear that she was standing by her man. She told everyone that she wished Clyde would get out of jail and said to her friends that she wanted him to straighten out so they could have a life together. Did she really wish for something so conventional? I don't know if I buy it. Bonnie finally met Clyde's family while Clyde was in jail. They were poor and lived on a campground. Kumi, Clyde's mom, was traditional and religious and didn't like anyone who wasn't holy. This was probably the reason why Clyde kept Bonnie hidden from her. Of course, the second Kumi saw Bonnie's makeup and jewelry, she didn't like her one bit. Bonnie did, however, get very close to Clyde's younger sister, Marie, even inviting her to stay at her house from time to time. Bonnie really loved children, but she had fertility problems and would probably never be able to get pregnant. At age 19, she wanted to make her relationship with Clyde work. They had only known each other for about a month at this point. It's like a twisted Disney movie. Clyde wasn't convicted for the attempts of robbery charge, but he was still taken to Waco to go to jail. Bonnie moved to Waco, Texas and stayed with her cousin so she could stay close to Clyde. Inmates in prison at the time were forced to perform hard labor with little to no pay. It was slave labor in modern-day plantations. Many of the inmates were black, and the inmates were only given the bare minimum to survive. Clyde asked Bonnie to help him break out of jail. Who would ever assume that this strawberry blonde 20-year-old would be involved in a prison break? So, on Clyde's orders, Bonnie went to a fellow inmate's home, took their gun, and slipped it under her dress. 
Then, she went to go visit Clyde at the prison. She made it through without hesitation and brought it to Clyde. She wondered for two days if he made it, but then it was all over the news. They had left a trail of stolen cars behind them, and they were caught. Bonnie was waiting for Clyde to reach out to her, but he never did. She went back home to stay with her mother, and Clyde was sent to East Ham Prison Farm for a 14-year sentence. This prison was rough. At this point, Bonnie insisted she was finished with Clyde. I would be too. Bitch, I helped you escape from jail, and you fuck it up by stealing a bunch of cars and landing in prison for 14 years? Although they were still in touch, the letters were becoming fewer and fewer. Bonnie had started going out with some other men and did her best to forget about Clyde Barrows. At this time, Kumi, Clyde's mother, was petitioning hard to get her son out of prison. Clyde was repeatedly raped by a fellow inmate named Ed Crowder in prison. Crowder was six feet tall and over 200 pounds, while Clyde was only between 5'4 and 5'7. This was most likely a big turning point in Clyde's behavior. Research shows that men who are raped in prison often have a fear of appearing less masculine. The abuse could also cause post-traumatic stress disorder and increase anger and emotional distancing. Clyde was already overcompensating, so after his experience in prison, I can understand why the need for violence increased in him. Clyde had his eyes set on revenge, though. One night, Clyde snuck a galvanized pipe into the building and lured Crowder down a private hallway. When Crowder caught up to him, Clyde bludgeoned him in the head, killing him. Luckily, someone else that was already convicted for murder got blamed for the crime. He was still desperate to get out of prison. He even cut off two of his toes with an axe to get out of work. One month later, he learned that his mother had achieved her goal in petitioning for him to get pardoned. He was free, but he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. When he got out, he made a promise to himself that he would never end up back in prison. He went back to Cement City and began working in his father's gas station. Bonnie was now 21 and had a new boyfriend and a new job, but she was still bored. It had been 17 months since she had last seen Clyde when he showed up at her house. She immediately broke up with the other boyfriend and went with Clyde. In 1932, they left Cement City for good. Emma was not pleased to see that Bonnie was back with Clyde. Bonnie told her that she had gotten a job in Houston to make her feel better, but Bonnie had no such plan. She was going to Houston to begin her life on the run with Clyde and the Barrow Gang. She was ready for adventure, and traveling with her boyfriend and his gang was exactly what she was looking for. First, they broke their friend Scally out of Easton Prison. Bonnie was to deliver the plans to Scally at the prison, and Clyde and his gang made plans to get him out. Bonnie was a great addition to the gang because she was so unassuming. No one would think that a woman could possibly be a criminal. After that, they went to Tyler, Texas to steal some cars. Bonnie stood watch as Clyde and his friend Fultz stole a couple cars. On the way back, the men decided they wanted to stop in another town to steal some guns in a hardware store. Little did they know, a night's watchman had noticed the stolen cars and thought they were suspicious. These were fancy pants cars, and they stood out in a small town. The watchman approached the gang and shot at Clyde. Clyde shot back at the men, and the gang drove away, back toward Dallas. They ended up getting the car stuck in the woods, so they traveled by foot until they found a farmhouse, and traveled by mule to a small town to steal a car. But then that car ran out of gas. They're still being pursued by the authorities, so they hid back in the woods. The police soon found them. Remember, it was Clyde's promise to himself to never end up back in prison. He knew that they couldn't all get away, so he left Bonnie and his friend laying in a creek bed and ran away. He told them that he would be back for them, but he never did. Bonnie and Fultz were arrested. Bonnie was just three months into her great adventure, and it appeared to already be over. She was taken to jail. She comprised a plan with Fultz as they awaited trial. She was going to tell the judge that Clyde had kidnapped her and convinced her to go through with the whole thing. Fultz encouraged her to do this, as this could be the only way she avoided going to prison. When Emma found out her daughter was in jail, she was pissed and a nervous wreck. She wanted to bail her out, but Emma also believed that maybe some jail time would help Bonnie see that Clyde wasn't the one for her. I don't know, I think that's pretty good parenting, if you ask me. If I had a kid that was in jail, I would probably do the same thing. While in jail, Bonnie began writing poetry again, and swore up and down that she would never ever see Clyde Barrows again. Even so, Clyde's family visited her often, and would bring her clothes and makeup. Here's some of the poetry that she wrote when she was in jail. This one is entitled Suicide Sal. It's one of her most famous. Then I left my old home for the city to play in its mad, dizzy whirl. 
not knowing how little pity hold for a country girl. There I fell for the line of a henchman, a professional killer from Chai. I couldn't help loving him madly, for him even now I would die. In another poem from herself, she wrote, If he had returned to me sometime, though he hadn't a penny to give, I'd forget all this hell that he caused me and love him as long as I live. But there's no chance in his ever coming, for he and his maul have no fears, but that I will die in prison or flatten this fifty years. Emma noticed that Bonnie had seemed quieter and sadder since the arrest, almost older. Nothing like the hopeless romantic, energetic daughter that she knew. Bonnie was in jail from April to June 1932. When the grand jury trial came, she did exactly as she had planned. She claimed to have been kidnapped by the Barrow Gang, and she was released. They couldn't believe that a woman would choose to spend her time with criminals. She hadn't heard a word from Clyde since he ran. She found out why when she was released. Clyde was on the run for murder. He would try to contact her, but she wouldn't reply. Although, after less than a month on her own, she realized she would rather live a dangerous life with Clyde than a typical life at home. So she contacted him, and they reconnected once again. And again, she lied to her mom, saying she got a waitressing job, and met with Clyde and the fellow gang member Raymond Hamilton in Wichita, Texas. Now, I think a lot of us want to be screaming right now, Oh my God, just leave him! Why are you going back? But abusive relationships can feel impossible to be released from. I knew after a few months of knowing my abuser that I had to get out, yet it would take me over three years to actually do it for good. In August of 1932, Bonnie went home to visit her mother. But when Bonnie was away, Clyde and Raymond decided they wanted to go to a dance hall. While they were there, they got into a shootout with the police, and Clyde shot and killed Deputy Eugene Seymour. When Clyde told Bonnie what happened, she told them that she knew of a place they could hide. Damn, Bonnie, you switched fast. What happens to not wanting to live a life of crime? Now you are full-on hiding fugitives. This was the first time she took a real role in the Barrow Gang's criminal behavior. She sent Clyde and Raymond to her Aunt Millie's house in New Mexico. Bonnie told her aunt that she and Clyde had just gotten married and were on a trip with her friend. While they stayed with Millie for a couple of days, the boys would do target practice in the yard. Millie started to get suspicious of the young couple. How could they afford such nice cars? And how did they get all the money they brought with them? I too would be shocked if a 21-year-old and her husband showed up to my house in a souped-up car and lots of cash. Millie had heard about several car thefts in the area recently, so she called the police. She called the police on her own niece. That's cold. Deputy Joe Johns showed up to arrest the trio. When Johns asked Bonnie where she got the car, she said it was her husband's. When the officer went to go look at the car, Clyde and Raymond, who were holding loaded guns, threatened him and fired a warning shot. The deputy surrendered, and the gang took him as their hostage. Clyde wanted to kill him, but Bonnie pleaded with him not to. Bonnie did not like violence, especially when she thought it was unnecessary. Clyde, Raymond, Bonnie, and now Deputy Johns were in a car headed back to Texas. Before they dropped Johns off in Victoria, Texas, Bonnie and Clyde stupidly told the deputy their names. John had never heard of them before, so Bonnie filled them in on their life of adventure. She told him all about stealing new cars every day and car chases. From this point on, Bonnie and Clyde's names were on wanted posters all over Texas. Emma found out what her daughter had really been up to when she saw her face on a wanted poster. I can't imagine the heartache and probably anger she felt when she saw her sweet daughter's face being associated with such violence. The anger went directly for Clyde and blamed him for everything. While Bonnie boasted, she really wasn't that involved in the criminal activity at the time. She was a good lookout and distraction, though. When Raymond wanted out of the gang later that year, they dropped him off in Michigan. They had stolen a car from Illinois along the way and left it in Oklahoma, which got the attention of police. When they looked in the car, they found a bottle of medicine with the name Clyde Barrow on it. Now, Oklahoma was on the lookout for the duo. At this time, the public saw Bonnie as a stupid, lovesick girl and knew she couldn't have anything to do with the crimes. Although Bonnie was less active in the crimes at this time, she knew exactly what she was doing and she was no dummy. During their first year of crimes in 1932, they often sent postcards to their families to let them know how they were. They were always really good about keeping in touch with their family. While on the run, they would go to different farms and pay the farmers for their stay. When they couldn't do that, they lived in their car. Bonnie was not a fan of the outdoors, so Texas snakes and dirt were not her ideal decoration for her home. Bonnie was often seen in high heels and fancy berets and hats. To help her through these nights camping outside, she drank whiskey. 
and a lot of it. She was usually a whiskey drinker, but times were tough, so she drank more than usual. Clyde had also began to show violence toward Bonnie, which made her drink even more. Instead of leaving, she hoped alcohol would soothe her instead. She was still madly in love with him, as he showed her small acts of kindness. He knew she loved to write, so he stole a typewriter for her. He knew she liked whiskey, so he would bring her lemons to chew on so her breath didn't smell like whiskey afterwards. As Bonnie thought this was unladylike. This would become somewhat of Bonnie's signature smell. The two got a camera and liked taking goofy photos together. They would keep newspaper clippings about themselves and love sharing these things with each other. They had finally reached the level of fame they had always wanted, but they still craved more. They went on to rob a bank in Missouri, and this was the first robbery where Bonnie was actually involved. The gang told Bonnie to go in the bank the day before and case the place. In November of 1932, it was weird for a woman to walk into a bank alone, unattended, so she caught the attention of the tellers. When Clyde went in to rob the bank the following day, the teller was waiting for him. He shot at Clyde, but missed, so Clyde shot back at him with his machine gun. Clyde ran to the getaway car, driven by Bonnie, and the Barrow Gang got away with $110, roughly $1,800 today. They drove away, but Bonnie was now known as the getaway driver. Soon, a new member joined the gang, a teenager named W.D. Jones. Bonnie loved the kid. On January 6, 1933, they were in a shootout with Texas Rangers Smoot Schmidt. I'm not kidding, they called the guy Smoot. Bonnie was the getaway driver, but Smoot swears she was one of the shooters. Bonnie claims she never shot a gun and wasn't a fan of guns, but now she was known as being a female gangster, and America was charmed by her. This gave her even more ammunition to become even more famous. Now we're going to move on to 1933, which was the height of their infamy. Smoot wrote anonymously after the shootout about Bonnie, a tough two-gun girl as tough as the back end of a shooting gallery. This gave Bonnie a tougher and more mysterious image to the public, and it made her a star. Is anyone else getting Roxy from Chicago vibes right now? Then we move into 1933, which was the height of their infamy. They did a lot of robberies and a lot of kidnapping of police officers, but they coldly murdered anyone who got in their way. It seems like Clyde cared less and less when he had to do the killing. Bonnie, at this time, had changed the public perception of what a criminal looked like and what a woman was capable of doing. When escaping a gunfight, the gang got into a car accident in a field. They knew the police were on their trail, so they found someone and paid them to help pull the car out, and they were on their way. From January to March, Bonnie, Clyde, and W.D. were on the run. They were too high-profile to rob banks, so they began robbing mom-and-pop shops for money. Bonnie and Clyde had always seen themselves as Robin Hood figures, so they would have to come up with excuses for why they had to steal from these small businesses, and would even treat their hostages kindly as a justification for their actions. They had a very weird sense of conscience. For example, on January 26, 1933, in Springfield, Missouri, Hey, Keegan. They were pulled over by a cop named Thomas Purcell. They took him hostage, and they rode together until the car broke down. W.D. and the hostage Purcell went on foot to get a new battery for the car, and they carried the battery back, and Purcell helped replace it. So they let him go. They would rarely kill their hostages, and many believe that this is because of Bonnie. They may also think that they couldn't get caught, even if they did set their hostages free. During this time, they didn't get to see their family very much. Bonnie really missed her mom, but it was too dangerous to go home. But soon, they found a sneaky way to see each other about once a month. The duo would drive by Clyde's parents' house and throw Coke bottles out of their car with notes about where to meet them. Then, Clyde's mom would call Bonnie's mom, and she would say, I'm fixing red beans. This was code for Bonnie and Clyde are in town. Bonnie's sister, Billie Jean, would always visit Bonnie, who would tell her sister how much she missed her family and how lonely she was. When they were in town, they always gave the family money, even though they were struggling themselves. Then, they met up with Clyde's ex-con brother, Buck, age 30, and his wife, Blanche, a 23-year-old religious and responsible girl. Now that Buck was out of prison, Clyde wanted his brother to come on the road with them for a while. Blanche didn't like this idea, but Buck gave her an ultimatum. He told her that she could either come with him or stay in Texas alone. Since Blanche wanted to be with him, she agreed to come with. The whole crew found an apartment and moved in together. That would have made a really great reality TV show, I'm sure. 
Blanche didn't like Bonnie or Clyde. She didn't approve of Bonnie's drinking or smoking and thought Clyde was foolish for his life of crime. Oddly, Bonnie really liked Blanche, though. Apparently, Bonnie liked just about everybody she met in her travels. She liked that Blanche was there to do the cooking and the cleaning as well, since she was lousy at it. They laid low in Missouri, and they lived a picturesque family life for a few months. They weren't aware that their neighbors had been suspicious of them since they moved in. Remember, they weren't ones to hide their wealth, and the neighbors noticed the fancy cars and the fact that they had lots of money to spend going out to party at night and shopping during the day. They even had their groceries delivered to their house. And finally, one night Clyde shot off a gun while cleaning it. They were living in a city, so their neighbors could hear everything and became even more skeptical. On April 12, 1933, the guy stole a car and brought it back to the apartment. Bonnie was furious and told them that she thought it was a bad idea. Clyde got really mad at her and a violent fight broke out. But Bonnie was right. The neighbors noticed the cars and they called the police. The police then began monitoring the apartment. A few days later, Blanche and Bonnie heard a gunshot outside their home. Bonnie says she picked up a gun and shot out the window to protect the men, but Blanche disputes this. Buck ran to the women and said the police were there and they had to run. Bonnie was only in her nightgown, kimono, and slippers. Then W.D. came to the gang and they saw that he'd been shot. He had gotten into a shootout with the cops in the garage and he had killed a few of them. The whole gang got into the car and drove away, leaving destruction in their wake. They were all wounded, but they recovered. When the cops later raided the apartment, they found some of the poems Bonnie had written, and an undeveloped roll of film. They had the film developed, and they revealed those goofy shots they took of themselves at the beginning of their journey. They kind of look like photos that you would take at an old-time photo stand at the state fair. In one, Bonnie has a cigar in her mouth, which would lead to her refuting for the rest of her life that she did not smoke cigars. In another, Clyde has dipped Bonnie like they're dancing. In another, she points a shotgun at Clyde. They looked like young, glamorous lovers. She became a style icon and women started wearing berets just like hers. Movie theaters even began showing newsreels about her before the show began. To Bonnie, she was glad to have gotten this close to being in the movies. Bonnie, Clyde, Buck, Blanche, and W.D. laid low until April 7, 1933. About two weeks after the raid, they traveled all around the country, committing small robberies to pay for gas, food, and lodging. In Ruston, Louisiana, W.D. stole a car, and the gang lost sight of him. He was being chased away by the victim in another car, so the Barrow Gang jumped into their car to chase after them. They took the members of the other car hostage, forcing them into their car. The gang drove them to Arkansas before they were released. They also had one condition upon their release. The hostages weren't allowed to turn around and look at them until they were sure they were far away. But the couple broke that promise and snuck a peek. They told the police the license plate of the car, and the Barrow gang left town after that. But they still couldn't find W.D. On May 11, 1933, they decided to rob the Lucrine State Bank, they had tried to stay hidden overnight in the bank to surprise the manager in the morning, but luckily the manager spotted them first and fired at them. Clyde ordered Bonnie to shoot at the man as they drove away, and allegedly she did. Bonnie said she didn't like it and didn't like guns at all. She later said she missed the man on purpose. When Mother's Day came around, Bonnie really missed her mom and begged Clyde to go to Dallas to see her. Clyde finally agreed and had Blanche drive to Dallas to get both mothers to bring them to where they were. Blanche ended up telling Emma all about Bonnie and Clyde's exploits on the way, and then when Emma got there, she begged Bonnie to turn herself into the police. Of course, Bonnie refused. She was dedicated to Clyde. When Bonnie and Clyde went out on the road again, they eventually got back in touch with W.D. Little did they know there was a coalition to take them down. On June 10th in Wellington, Texas, their car flipped into a ravine. There was either a gasoline fire or Bonnie was doused with acid from the car's battery under the floorboards. She sustained third-degree burns on her right leg so bad that her muscles contracted, making her leg draw up into her body. She could hardly walk and was often carried by Clyde. They found a nearby farmhouse, and the farmers called the police when the gang was acting suspiciously. When the cops arrived, the gang took Collingsworth County Sheriff George Corey and City Marshal Paul Hardy hostage. The gang handcuffed and barbed-wired the men to a tree outside of Eric, Oklahoma. 
They stayed in Arkansas for a while, waiting for Bonnie's leg to heal. They really had to flee after Buck and W.D. robbed and murdered the town marshal, Henry D. Humphrey, and they headed to Platte City, Missouri. Five days later, Bonnie's leg still wasn't any better. Clyde was able to find a doctor who prescribed Bonnie with Amatil, a barbiturate which helped Bonnie sleep and relieved her pain. Barbiturates are highly addictive. That's how Judy Garland and Jimi Hendrix died. And the withdrawal happens really fast. The withdrawal can make a person angry and irritable very easily. Bonnie was constantly going through phases of withdrawal as she went on and off the drug. She was miserable to be around. Blanche said she would often pick fights with her and try to throw she and Buck out of the gang. It was July 1933. They rented two brick cabins that were joined by garages. It was really weird. Blanche paid for the cabin in coins rather than bills and would also do this when the gang went out to the popular local restaurant, the Red Crown Tavern. As with everywhere they went, their style also set them apart from the rest of the town. After Clyde and W.D. went to the local drugstore to purchase bandages, crackers, cheese, and atropine sulfate for Bonnie's leg, the druggist called the local sheriff, Holt Coffee, who put the cabins under surveillance. I love these cops' names. Smoot? Coffee? It's awesome. Coffee had been alerted by law enforcement in Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas to look for strangers seeking such supplies. Reinforcements from Kansas City were called in, along with an armored car, and Coffee led the group to the cabins at 11 p.m., armed with Thompson submachine guns. The submachine gun would end up being no match for Clyde's 30 caliber BAR, which had recently been stolen from the National Guard Armory in Oklahoma. They were able to escape again when the cops mistook a short-circuited bullet on the armored car as a ceasefire. Though they escaped, they didn't get away unscathed. Buck had a large bullet wound in his forehead skull bone, so bad that his brain was exposed, and Blanche was nearly blinded from flying shards of glass that got in both of her eyes. She too was grazed in the head and shot in the arm. They hid away at an abandoned amusement park near Dexter, Iowa. Buck was coming in and out of consciousness, but he was able to speak and eat. Even so, the wound was so large and he was losing so much blood. Clyde and W.D. began digging a grave for him. Locals noticed bloody bandages, which tipped the officers to thinking it was the Barrow Gang. They were under fire again. They ran from the scene, but Buck was shot in the back, and he and Blanche were captured by the cops. Buck died from his wounds and pneumonia after a surgery he had had five days later in Perry, Iowa. Blanche recovered in the hospital and spent the next ten years in prison. Clyde and W.D. were also wounded during the shootout. They were also distressed over losing their friend and family, Buck and Blanche. Over the next six weeks, Clyde, Bonnie, and W.D. traveled through Colorado, Minnesota, Mississippi, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and more, committing more and more armed robberies. They stopped and restocked their arsenal in Platteville, Illinois, on August 20th, 1933. About a month after the ambush, Clyde had let W.D. out of the car to go steal a new one, but W.D. never came back. Then, the couple lived out of their car, and Bonnie started writing poetry again. This was around the time she wrote The Trail's End, or what would be known as The Ballad of Bonnie and Clyde. You've read the story of Jesse James, of how he lived and died. If you're still in need of something to read, here's the story of Bonnie and Clyde. Now Bonnie and Clyde are the Barrow Gang, I'm sure you have all read. How they rob and steal, and those who squeal, as usually found dying or dead. There's lots of untruths to these write-ups. They're not as ruthless as that. Their nature is raw. They hate all the law. The stool pigeons, spotters, and rats. They call them cold-blooded killers. They say they are heartless and mean. But I say this with pride, that I once knew Clyde when he was honest and upright and clean. But the law fooled around, kept taking him down and locking him up in a cell, till he said to me, I'll never be free, so I'll meet a new few of them in hell. The road was so dimly lighted, there was no highway signs to guide, but they made up their minds, if all roads were blind, they wouldn't give up till they died. The road gets dimmer and dimmer, sometimes you can hardly see, but it's fight man to man, and do all you can, for they know they can never be free." From heartbreak, some people have suffered. From weariness, some people have died. But take it all in all, our troubles are small, till we get like Bonnie and Clyde. If a policeman is killed in Dallas, and they have no clue or guide, 
If they can't find a fiend, they just wipe their slate clean and hang it on Bonnie and Clyde. There's two crimes committed in America, not accredited to the Barrow mob. They had no hand in the kidnap demand, nor the Kansas City depot job. A newsboy once said to his buddy, I wish old Clyde would get jumped. In these awful hard times, we'd make a few dimes if five or six cops would get bumped. The police haven't got report yet, but Clyde called me up today. He said, don't start any fights. We aren't working nights. We're joining the NRA. From Irving to West Dallas, Viaduct is known as the Great Divide, where the women are kin and the men are men, and they won't stool on Bonnie and Clyde. If they try to act like citizens and rent them a nice little flat, about the third night they're invited to fight by a subgun's rat-tat-tat. They don't think they're too smart or desperate. They know that the law always wins. They've been shot at before, but they do not ignore that death is wages of sin. Someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To few, it'll be grief. To the law, a relief. But it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. They started feeling more confident in their escape and decided to see their family. So that September, they went to Dallas. They stayed with their family for a while, and Emma was there to help care for Bonnie while her leg continued to recover. In October, Bonnie began drinking heavily again. This was probably due to the immense pain, and I would assume restlessness that came along with her injury. Bonnie doesn't seem to be satisfied staying in one place for long, and alcohol could have been the escape she needed from her life. I also wonder if she was still mixing barbiturates at the time, which is a really nasty combination. During that time, Smoot got word that Bonnie and Clyde were back in Texas. Not many wanted to help Smoot catch them. The duo had given so much money to those in need that they didn't want to turn them in. Emma tried one last time to get Bonnie to leave Clyde. Even Clyde wanted Bonnie to stay with her mom so she could stay alive. But Bonnie refused. The pair was almost arrested on November 22nd when they were meeting family in Sowers, Texas. Sheriff Smoot was back, along with two other deputies by his side. They opened fire at Clyde's car. Both Bonnie and Clyde began to shoot. The cops' BAR rifles shot through the car and into the legs of both Bonnie and Clyde. They were still able to escape. They found a nurse and paid her to help them. The next week, a Dallas grand jury delivered a murder indictment against Bonnie and Clyde for the killing of Tarrant County Deputy Malcolm Davis, which had occurred about 10 months prior. This was Bonnie's first warrant for murder. In, 19, in January 1934, a man named Floyd Hamilton approached Clyde about helping him get his brother out of prison. Floyd was Raymond Hamilton's brother. If you remember, Raymond was part of the gang way back when. It was a good friend of Clyde's. Raymond was in Easton prison and wanted Clyde's help. But Clyde was hesitant to help Floyd. He and Bonnie were not in their best physical health but it was actually Bonnie who insisted that they go through with the escape plan. That way Raymond could join them and their adventure could begin again, just like the old days. Bonnie, Clyde, Floyd, and another man got Raymond out of jail. Their escape worked so well, it wasn't just Raymond that got out of jail. It was three other men as well. Their names were Joe Palmer, Hilton Bybee, and Henry Methvin. Henry was serving time for attempted murder. They made up the new Barrow Gang, robbing banks and stores, bringing in lots of riches. During this time, former Texas Ranger Captain Frank Hamer decided he wanted to be the one to catch the Barrow Gang. He was currently working as a Texas Highway Patrol officer after retiring from the Rangers and was secondly assigned to the prison system as a special investigator, and he was given the specific task of taking down the Barrow Gang. Hamer was a tall and burly guy who was quiet and reserved and unimpressed by authority. He was driven by an inflexible adherence to right, or what he thinks is right. He had a reputation after capturing and shooting a number of Texas criminals. In his career, he had killed 53 and had suffered 17 wounds. Starting on February 10th, Hamer became Bonnie and Clyde's constant shadow. He lived out of his car, just a town away from them. On Easter Sunday, April 1st, 1934, Clyde and Henry killed Highway Patrolman H.D. Murphy and Edward Bryant Wheeler in Grapevine, Texas. An eyewitness claimed to have seen Claude and Bonnie fire the fatal shots, and this story spread until Henry later admitted that he fired the first shot, assuming Clyde would have wanted the officers killed. He said that Bonnie had actually approached the dying officers intending to help them. 
But all throughout the spring, the story of the grapevine killings were widespread and in exaggerated detail. Several days later, Murphy's fiancé wore her intended wedding dress to his funeral, which attracted more media and news coverage. The popularity of the story made the public more and more anxious to have the duo captured. This led to a highway patrol officer offering an award of $1,000 for the dead bodies of the grapevine slayers. They didn't want Bonnie and Clyde. They wanted just their bodies. Texas Governor Ma Ferguson added an additional $500 for each of the two killers. Five days later, Clyde and Henry were added again. This time, they kidnapped 60-year-old Commerce Police Chief Percy Boyd. They took him across state lines to Kansas and let him go. They gave him a clean shirt, a few bucks, and a request from Bonnie to tell the world that she did not, in fact, smoke cigars. Boyd identified Bonnie and Clyde to the authorities, but he didn't know Henry Methvin's name. A historian wrote, For the first time, Bonnie was seen as a killer, actually pulling the trigger, just like Clyde. Whatever chance she had for clemency had just been reduced. In the Dallas Journal, they ran a cartoon on its editorial page showing an empty electric chair with a sign on it saying, Reserved, with Bonnie and Clyde written underneath it. For three months, Hamer had been tracking the Barrel Gang, studying their movements. He learned that they moved in a circle across the edges of five Midwestern states, exploiting the state line rule, which prevents officers from pursuing a fugitive in another jurisdiction. The barrows seemed to follow a pattern, so Hamer took the time to learn it. He saw that they were due to visit Henry's family soon in Louisiana. Hamer's posse consisted of six men, Hinton, Alcorn, and Maney Galt, along with Louisiana officers Jordan and Oakley. On May 21st, the officers were in Shrevenport when they learned that the gang would be headed to Bienville Parish that evening. They planned an ambush along Louisiana State Highway 154. The posse was in place by 9 p.m., and they ended up waiting all through the next day with still no sign of the fugitives. At about 9.15 a.m. on May 23rd, they were about to give up when they finally heard a Ford V8, Clyde's favorite kind of car, approaching. They had somehow gotten a hold of W.D. and persuaded him to leave his car on the shoulder, hoping that Clyde would stop to help him. When Clyde fell into the trap, the posse jumped from the bushes and opened fire while Clyde was still driving. Oakley fired first, most likely before he was ordered to do so. Clyde was killed instantly by Oakley's headshot. They reportedly heard Bonnie scream. In total, the officers fired 130 rounds of ammunition, emptying their weapons onto the car. Actual footage of the event was taken immediately after the ambush that shows 112 bullet holes in the V8. Around a quarter of those shots hit the couple. The coroner listed 17 entrance wounds on Clyde's body and 26 on Bonnie, including several headshots on each of them. One bullet had snapped Clyde's spinal column. The undertaker even had a hard time embalming the bodies because there were so many bullet holes. When the officers researched the vehicle... They found an arsenal of weapons, including stolen automatic rifles, sawed-off semi-automatic shotguns, assorted handguns, and several thousand rounds of ammunition and 15 sets of license plates from different states. Word of Bonnie and Clyde's death spread fast. Galt and Alcorn were left to guard the scene and the bodies, but they soon lost control of a mob that had formed. One woman cut off a lock of Bonnie's strawberry blonde hair and sold it. One man attempted to cut off Clyde's trigger finger. The coroner reported this about the scene. Nearly everyone had begun collecting souvenirs such as shell casings, slivers of glass from car windows, and bloody pieces of clothing from the garments of Bonnie and Clyde. One eager man opened his pocket knife and was reaching into the car to cut off Clyde's left ear. Eventually, they were able to disband the mob. They towed the Ford V8, with the body still inside, to a funeral parlor. That night, the population of this small northwest Louisiana town went from 2,000 to 12,000 within hours. More groups formed outside the funeral parlor, selling beer for 25 cents instead of the usual 15. When their personal items were collected, they noticed the wedding band that Roy had given Bonnie still placed on her ring finger. Inside, Clyde's father, Henry Barrow, identified his son's body. Like it said in the poem, Bonnie and Clyde had wished to be buried side by side, but Bonnie's mom, Emma, refused. Emma wanted Bonnie to come home, but the mobs surrounding their home made that impossible. 
More than 20,000 people attended her funeral on May 26, 1933, and the family struggled to get near the burial site. A large floral tribute was sent to the funeral by a group of Dallas newsboys. Since the sudden death of Bonnie and Clyde, they had sold 500,000 papers in Dallas alone. She was originally buried in Fishtrap Cemetery, but moved in 1945 to Crown Hill Cemetery in Dallas. In February 1935, Dallas and federal authorities arrested and tried 20 members of the Barrow Gang's family and friends for aiding and abetting. This became known as the Harboring Trial, and all 20 either pled guilty or were found guilty. Emma and Kumi, their moms, spent 30 days in jail. Bonnie's life, in the end, turned out exactly the way she always wanted. She was a hopeless romantic, so she fell in love with a bad boy. She wanted adventures, so she went along with his crimes. She wanted a Hollywood love story, and they went out like Hollywood lovers do. Since their death, their notoriety only increased. People all over the world knew who Bonnie and Clyde were and what they did. But did they ever really know the woman behind the criminal exterior? I was really fascinated by Bonnie. I found a lot of similarities between myself and Bonnie, such as our love for tattoos, our impulsiveness, uh, our ability to put up with a lot of bullshit from men. Um, I really, really enjoyed getting to know this story a bit better and learning more about Bonnie. And I was very surprised to find that she wasn't really as bad as I thought she was. I mean, yes, she shot at people and that's horrible, but... I thought that she would be like this ruthless fucking bitch. So the fact that she was actually kind of compassionate, at least, was something that really surprised me. Then again, like I said, I don't condone violence, so I'm not <laughs> looking at her as a hero. I don't want somebody to say I'm being a hypocrite right now. All right, everybody. If there's anything that you need, if there's anything you'd like to say, Go ahead and email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me at Angry Neighborhood Feminist on Instagram and follow me there. You can also catch us at Yanf Podcast, Y-A-N-F Podcast. We have a Facebook business and group page. Like I said in the beginning, on that Facebook business page, you can leave us a review. But on the group page, you can chat with the other listeners. And like I said in the beginning of the episode, everybody is so freaking wonderful and supportive. Like y'all are making me cry. Also, if you don't already, go ahead and listen to us on that Radio Public app. It is free for you, and it helps us a little bit. All right. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Oh, and happy belated Halloween. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.